Well, located in Seoul, South Korea, the Sampung department store hosted up to 40,000 people per day. It was originally designed as an office building, but Lee June, the owner, changed the plans. He cut back on support columns. Those that remained, he reduced. He added a fifth floor to the four-story structure. It was meant to be a roller skating rink, but converted to a food court. The contractor raised concerns about all this. Lee June fired him. And he finished the building and opened for business on July 7th, 1990. Five years later, in the span of 20 seconds, the Sampung department store collapsed. Over 500 people died with 1,500 injured. Lee June would go to prison, charged with negligence. He departed from the design by inventing his own plan. This is often the case with the human heart before God. Because within the heart there is a a pull, there is a, a, a drag away from God and toward the flesh, toward desires, desires that lead to negligence. You see, God has revealed his plans. He's given us designs. He's given us his will for our lives and his will for creation. And when followed, the rewards are enormous. But when rejected, the ruins are immense. God has given us a design for his church. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and back in Matthew 18, we examine his design for community, how we as a local church are to relate to each other. We learned how to to keep others from sinning, how to rescue those who do, and how to lavish forgiveness upon everyone. You see, God's design for the family of God is, is perfect. And it is clear. In chapter 19, we now see two new designs. Designs for relationships. God's plan for marriage and God's view of children. To grasp God's plan for community, we'll explore three designs for marriage. We'll explore these this morning. His design for marriage makes it the most intimate long-lasting, and sanctifying of any relationship we might ever encounter. Marriage and family are also necessary. They are critical building blocks for any society. It is then, no doubt, that both presently suffer grievously. Satan is also well aware of the plan. His redesigns have caused great corruption and calamity and collapse and fallout. So you and I must take God's word on these topics and hold them tightly. Tightly. This is something that all of us must do. For a message on marriage is not one that's only for people who are currently married or about to be married. 
It is that for certain to our young married couples this morning. This message applies to you. It'll apply to you when your marriage struggles. It will apply when the exit door seems like a good idea. This message applies to seniors, to those who have been married for decades. You need to invest in younger people. Help them. Old age is not a time to to sit back and relax on the laurels of a a hard-worked life. It's a time to reinvest and serve God anew with all that wisdom he's given you. Young married people need that. This is a message for singles, for adults or young people who seek to be married one day. We're going to see in this morning's message that there's tremendous value in being single. God can do great things for you. God can do great things through you. But one day you may desire to get married. Well, you can know exactly what God's will is, exactly God's design. And I would say as well that I approach this passage with a heightened sensitivity. I recognize that the weightiness and and the sensitivity of topics such as divorce, perhaps some here this morning have been divorced or, or have divorced, Uh, Surely all of us know someone who's been affected by divorce. Maybe we're we're children of someone who's been divorced. That would be my case this morning. But we know that for all who have felt the pains and, and bear the scars of these things, that God is gracious and God is compassionate. And God is going to meet all of his people wherever they are and whatever their experience And I do lament that I will not have every possible answer for questions that may arise from the text this morning, but but as always, I'm available to you. I'd love to meet and talk more. I'd love to open the Word with you if you have questions about this morning's message. Well, I turn now to look at our first six verses, God's design. Verses 1 through 6 speak to the permanence of marriage, the permanence of marriage. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What our passage this morning, we see that our Lord is on the move, He's in the process of moving toward Jerusalem, toward the climax or the purpose for his time on earth. He will again reveal this purpose to his disciples. That will happen in the next chapter. He's done this along the way in various ways. But on this journey, there's no shortage of action, and we already encounter some here today. The action today is triggered by a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? That's a peculiar question, isn't it? 
I mean, especially in light of what Jesus is doing. Verse 2, he's healing. Jesus is healing people. Matthew's recorded in his gospel this phenomenal ministry of our Lord. Everywhere he went, he had such a compassion for people, constantly healing. In chapter 4, it was demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics. In chapter 15, the lame and the crippled and the blind and the mute. In chapter 14, when people recognized him, they would spread the word throughout the countryside to come and see this man. Even touching the fringe of his cloak cured the sick. Is it lawful for a man to heal? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? These Pharisees asked this question in the midst of ministry. We know that they're not rooting for Jesus. Matthew's presented them as his antagonists. They're testing Jesus. That same word is used back in Matthew chapter 4 of Satan, testing Jesus in the wilderness. The question is meant to divide, to cause Jesus to pick a side. You see, in this time, there were two main views on divorce. If Twitter were around, the topic would be trending. John the Baptist literally lost his head for taking a position. There were two rabbis that represented two different views on divorce. The first was um, Rabbi Shammai. The thinking of the Pharisees would be that if they could get Jesus to affirm one of these two positions, he would divide the people. The people in the opposing position would then find themselves at odds with Jesus. You might call Rabbi Shammai the conservative. He taught that divorce could only happen in the case of fornication. It was only through sexual unfaithfulness that divorce was permitted. Rabbi Hillel was the other view, and he would be the uh, liberal. We'd call him more the, the liberal view on divorce. A man could divorce his wife for any reason. Burning dinner, showing her ankles, and letting her hair down. And yes, it was a a very one-sided society. Women did not have the same initiative that men did to pursue divorce. How would Jesus navigate this minefield? How would he be able to answer without causing some kind of explosion among the people? What does he do? He goes to the Word of God. Jesus held a high view of Scripture. And notice in our passage that Jesus did not unravel a scroll seeking to find chapter and verse to reply. He knew it. He memorized the Word of God. Throughout his ministry, Jesus quoted from at least 14 different Old Testament books. He confirms numerous events and people as both real and historic Noah and the flood, Lot and the destruction of Sodom. He spoke of Moses and the burning bush, Solomon and the queen of Sheba, Jonah and the fish. He identified as real historic men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, Daniel, and the devil. 
He identified Adam and Eve. We live in an age of naturalism where the vocal majority snubs their nose at the supernatural of the Bible. They scoff at it. But Jesus believed it so much that he committed it to memory and he could recite the Old Testament and recite these passages. So sure was he of the truthfulness of Scripture. And Jesus goes back to the original design in creation. He goes back to the beginning, the first two chapters of the Bible. Verse 4 in our passage is a quote from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Verse 5 is a quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And he's not even having the debate, is he? They're asking about minimal grounds for divorce. Jesus is like, let's talk about God's plan for marriage. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That is to say that men and women are both image bearers of God. Men and women each equally bear the image of God. There are distinctions among them. Their roles differ, but they're both made in God's image. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus quotes it. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Three verbs drive that passage. A man shall leave his father and mother. Those former family ties are superseded now. Those parental loyalties are, are now surpassed. We see this at a wedding in the West. It's the giving of the bride. The father walks the bride down the aisle. It's a picture of that bride coming out from under his household and now being united in one flesh to a man. And Jesus says he is to be joined to his wife. The King James Version uses the word cleave. that has a nice ring to it. To leave and cleave. That's the design. And the end of verse 5 confirms that unity. The two shall become one flesh. Permanence is the design. It's a unity to remain unbroken till the rapture or death. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. And this, after all, answers the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus says, let no man separate. You know, in these few verses, our Lord has also spoken to the culture of our day. He has stated God's unchanging plan. Now, I want to see, or I want you to see in these verses that, that God has a design, that God has established the design, that God controls the design. That at no point does any person or movement or court, do any of them come along? Do any of them have permission to change God's design? Many attempt to. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus will find himself in the crosshairs of contemporary culture. 
People hate these beliefs. If you follow Jesus, if you stake your claim and believe wholeheartedly what Jesus teaches in verse 4 and verse 5, you will encounter resistance at some point. What does Jesus say? He says, God creates. That statement itself may make some bristle. Because if God creates, that means that I might have some accountability to him. The creation of God means that there is a God, that there's some form of servitude or lordship involved on my part to him. And if God created, something else didn't, evolution is fiction. He who created them from the beginning made them. Three times in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says he created them or, or God created And that Hebrew word means that it's something out of nothing, which is exactly what God did. God creates. And God creates males and females. God creates males and females without error. He never mistakes. He doesn't make males who should be females. He doesn't make females who should be males. Every one of his creations is fearfully and wonderfully made. All are made in the image of God. That means that a person's sex is based on reproductive function. It's not subjective. It's not arbitrary. It's not assigned at birth. In fact, at birth, you could examine the sexual organ and determine the sex. You could do a DNA test to confirm the sex. You see, when a male wishes to become a female, we do not have an occasion to celebrate. This is not a feeling to affirm. It's it's a sad, confused state. It's a brokenness because of sin. That's a target for the compassion of God and for the clarity that the gospel brings. There's an entire alphabet in need of our mercy. L, lesbian. G, gay. B, bisexual. T, transgender. That's been our discussion so far. Q, queer. That tends to be a blanket term. I is intersex. They appear to be biologically atypical. A is asexual, feeling no attraction. And plus is to include anyone that might be missing. You see, the massive distortion and confusion sown by Satan shows just how important male and female is to God, that he would target it on this level. He's after marriages as well. What did Jesus teach in this passage? That marriage is forever. Now, there is an exception for divorce. We're going to see that in verse 9. But Jesus begins with God's design. He says, let no man separate. That is to say that God's design for a marriage is to be monogamous. It's to be a heterosexual union. Union means God joined. Notice that in verse 6, by the way. Wherever you see a marriage, you see a union joined by God. Monogamous means one partner. Heterosexual means opposite sex. And because a marriage is between one man and one woman, that takes me to one more design we can observe this morning. That same-sex marriage is impossible. The concept itself is, is an oxymoron. It's like a square circle. It's impossible. Why is this so? Because God designed marriage. 
And when God designed marriage, he designed marriage to be between a male and a female. You can't have a marriage with a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It doesn't even matter what the highest court in any land would say. God has still not granted permission to redefine his designs. It's not even necessary when God has created all things good from the beginning. Going back to Genesis, Jesus teaches God's design. And it's a wonderful plan. If followed, we don't need to ask the questions of the Pharisees. But this idea of marriage remaining permanent, it takes effort. And for some of you this morning, it's very little effort. For others, you come in this morning exhausted from the effort. The Bible has a lot to say about how we keep our marriage permanent. But I want to point you to just one passage this morning. If you've never read this before, or if you haven't tried it, this is the secret to a successful marriage. And if you are doing this, this is no secret. It's just one more confirmation that the Bible is true in all that it says. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, spell out the key to a fruitful marriage. Read it with your spouse tonight. Husbands, read this to your wives tonight. Wives, ask your husbands to read this to you tonight. In summary, wives are to respect their husbands, and husbands are to love their wives. You see, when God created male and female, he wired, hardwired something within males and females. And each of that hardwiring is to be met by the other person. A wife needs love, a husband needs respect. And if the husband seeks to fulfill the wife's need, and he's loving her, and the wife is focused on respecting her husband, the marriage will be successful. You can put two completely different people together in a marriage, and it will work if they do this. You can have vegans and steak lovers You can have early risers and night owls. You can have husky fans and cougar fans. Why does this work? Because God designed marriage. And because since God designed marriage, he's also told us how to make it work. He's given us the the keys to walk through what he's ordained. Now, we know so far in our passage what the Pharisees are up to. We know that they're not going to relent in their offensive against Jesus. And they come along now with a second question to him. And he explains, secondly, verses 7 through 9, the exception of divorce. The exception of divorce. We saw the permanence of marriage. This is the exception of divorce. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, verse 9 contains what has been known as the exception clause. You see the word except in that passage. Now we know already that God has a permanent design for marriage. But Jesus shares an instance where divorce is permissible. 
And again, the teaching of Jesus comes as a result of a question. Why then did Moses command? In other words, if marriages are to be permanent, why is he issuing divorce certificates? And they're asking about a law that's given back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I want to read this to you and listen for a few things as I do. In this passage, Moses gives one command. I think the word and appears like seven times, so it feels like it's just running on. Moses is building up to one point. And notice as well that Moses does not command divorce. He permits it. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because, she has found, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you, as an inheritance. This is Moses' law to God's people under the Old Covenant. And in this passage, a man marries a woman, but there's an, a problem. Uh, the text isn't very specific. It says he has found some indecency in her. That has been <laughs> no shortage for a source of debate. Uh, remember the two schools, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. They would debate over what this indecency is. So this first husband finds some indecency, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. That means that then the woman is not to be an outcast, but she could, be, she could remarry. But if her second husband divorced her, the first husband could not take her back. That, by the way, was the command of the passage. It's for the husband. He could not remarry his former wife. Now, I say all that as background to what's happening in verse 8. Jesus says to them, it's because of the hardness of your heart. Moses, notice his word, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, this has not been so. God is gracious to hard-hearted people. And God's law through Moses gave a permission. It's interesting, Jesus uses the same language he did in verse 4, but from the beginning. Again, he's appealing to God's design. It was, it was not to be this way. And he goes on in verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So as a general rule, to divorce a spouse and to remarry would be to commit adultery. In God's eyes, that is breaking the marriage bond. And again, God being the designer of marriage is going to determine what is and is not a union. You will meet lawyers and even 
counsel from friends. You'll meet judges who make a ruling, but in God's eyes, the bond is broken when the most intimate of actions is happening outside marriage, the initial marriage in this case. And what Jesus is doing here is not completely brand new. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, he taught it on the Sermon on the Mount. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Except. You heard it again in this verse. Except for immorality. This is the exception in which divorce is permitted. The Greek word is pornea. And it means unlawful sexual intercourse, fornication, prostitution, and so on from there. When a spouse has committed such an act, in the eyes of God, that marriage bond has been broken. The other person is then free to divorce. They are free to remarry. But I do want to underscore again that that divorce is not obligated. It's not commanded. The door to reconcile, the door to renewal, it's always open. And God is a God of grace, and God is a God of mercy. And he can can patch together things that, that are broken. It's also noteworthy at this point to mention 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. The New Testament provides a second exception for divorce. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. That is to say, if an unbelieving spouse divorces a Christian, there's an allowance for that divorce to take place. But again, in both passages, divorce is not required. It's permitted. Sadly, in our world, It's invited. One online divorce service promises papers for as low as $139. Another is ready to file in 30 minutes. Presently, there are no-fault divorces. There are at-fault divorces. There are summary divorces. There's uncontested divorces. There's collaborative divorces. Oprah's website lists, quote, 16 signs it might be time to get a divorce. And the longest-running court show of all time, topping off at 39 seasons, is Divorce Court. It's a spectacle for entertainment. But none of these speak of the wounds or the sorrows or the pain. None of them offer mercy or love or hope. Believers, that's our job. That's up to us as the community of God to love people and to help them. The church alone has something unique to give those who have experienced divorce or who have been harmed by its effects. The church has the gospel. We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit living within her. To our point last week, we've been forgiven much and can 
understand forgiveness. We can empathize with sin and with brokenness, and we know how to forgive, and we can point people to Christ who forgives. You see, divorce is an opportunity for the church to be the church. You know, I've already seen some things at Emmanuel. I'm convinced that this church can be a church that's known around town as the place people go when they're hurting, if we want to be that. If we want to go that far and put ourselves out there, if we're willing to invest in people's lives on that level, we can be known as that church because God has given us all that we need in Christ and all that we need in his word and in the gospel. We can help people when marriages don't last forever and when divorce hurts. Jesus teaches us marriage, and he teaches on divorce. And finally, in our passage, he teaches on singleness. It's the third design. It's, there's a value in singleness. It's the value of singleness. Matthew chapter 19, verse 10. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. We see our third point here is another response from Jesus. This time it's to a statement by his disciples. If the relationship of the man is like this, it is better not to marry. In other words, if being married is this hard, why not remain single? That's actually not an unpopular question in our day. I was looking at some statistics. The CDC tracks marriage data. I don't know why the CDC has been tasked to do this. The Centers for Disease Control. Marriage is not a disease. That might reinforce the point that people have their concerns about getting married. But 2018 was the last year of available data, and it goes back to the year 1900. So that's 118 years of data on marriage and divorce. And I saw in 2018, there were less marriages that took place that year than any of the other 118 years. In fact, there's been a steady decline since 1986. The data agrees with the statement made by the disciples. It's too hard. Why do it? In verse 11, Jesus agrees, but only in a very narrow way. He says, not all men can accept this, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, some people are going to remain single. Not everyone is going to marry. There's three types of people who will not marry as Jesus explains this. There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. That means someone by nature may be born with physical limitations. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. That's going to be fairly rare in, in our day. It's probably less rare in the time of Jesus. For example, in the ancient Near East, there were eunuchs who would serve kings. Uh, they were intentionally eunuchs. Back in Esther chapter 2, verse 14 there's a eunuch that, whose name is Shaash Gaz, who serves a king Ahasuerus. Um, he's intentionally made a eunuch for service to the king. You might recall in the book of Acts, Philip evangelized an Ethiopian eunuch. 
Again, less common in our day, but back in that time, it would be um, more common out of servitude to a king. Thirdly, there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And I believe Jesus speaks here of a non-physical eunuch. This is someone who's chosen to remain single to serve the Lord. This is, by the way, the approach that the Apostle Paul took. He elevates singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, I wish that all men were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single even as I am. You see, single people, devoted to the work of the Lord, they are to be highly prized. Amy Carmichael, John Stott, Paul, Jesus. But I do believe, unfortunately, single Christians often do not get the credit that they deserve or the attention that they deserve. You see, singleness is not a second-class rank in the kingdom of God. Single people possess just as much worth and as much value as married people or as families. In fact, if God, if God calls a man or woman to remain single, it would be sin for us to try to impose upon them some kind of marriage or relationship. Do we help those who desire to get married? Absolutely. Do we help those called to remain single, stay single? Absolutely. You see, the family of God is big enough for, for all of them. For those who are married, those who are divorced, those who are single. God has an amazing design for his community. We see this in our text today. So how do we do all this? Well, rather than redesigning the plan that God's given us, we're not going to add levels or move columns, none of the stuff we saw at the beginning. We won't suffer collapse as that mall did. Say for the marrieds, for the divorced, for the single, to those who are seeking marriage this morning, to those who are, are wanting out of marriages, to seniors who can help the rest of us, how are we to live? Well, I go back to Matthew 18. Two words from our last two messages, humility and forgiveness. If you're single this morning, walk before the Lord in humility. If you're single this morning, you're going to have much temptation to put yourself at, at the center of life and to curtail things around your personal interests and your timetable. But make Christ the center of your life. Live all of your life for the glory of God. You have a unique way of doing that that married people or people with families do not have. If you're divorced this morning, let forgiveness be your banner. You've received the forgiveness of Jesus. Be freed from the prison cell that unforgiveness brings. It's your freedom. It's, it's to your health. It's for your walk with Christ. Be known for forgiveness. And if you're married this morning, let humility 
and forgiveness be your left shoe and your right shoe. Put these two on every morning you step out of bed. Forgiveness and humility will let your marriage last. Be humble and forgiving toward your spouse. Now, my analogy does break down because I see lots of room in my own marriage where I need to be humble and I need to be forgiving. I've got a left shoe with a hole in it and a right shoe with a scuff on it. My wife would say, your shoes stink some days. But today is also a day to recognize our failures, to confess them to God, and to go anew in His grace as people of humility and people marked by forgiveness. God has been kind to give this plan to us for the married, for the divorced, and the single. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you speak the wisest of words. And you share with us your Father's design for marriage. Oh, Father, we pray for us that we would be marked by humility, that we'd be marked by forgiveness, that wherever we are, married, divorced, single, oh, that we would find our value in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would live all of life for him. Give us that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.